a, a, a seven-point sermon, which is a lot of points for me. Um, seven, I know. I know some of you are like, wow, we're going to be here for a while. Um, what I'm going to do is if I don't get all the way through, I'm going to stop and just pick up next week. Um, these are some, some really important verses that we're getting into. Um, Paul has been building um, his argument for um, why we should trust in the Word of God and how we come to believe the Word of God. If, um, if you're unfamiliar with, um, with our, our Presbyterian tradition or um, why we call ourselves um, Reformed, um, it comes from the Protestant Reformation where some of the truths of the gospel, some very important truths um, of the gospel and, and biblical wisdom were lost um, through the years of the church. And those reformers didn't try to start something new. They really tried to, to reform the church according to the word of God. And some of the things that were lost was the sovereignty of God and salvation um, and the authority of the scriptures and how the Bible works in the life of the believer. Now, where that comes most practically to you, um, you might not be saying, Joe, I don't care much about Reformed theology. I've never heard of it. Don't intend um, to do much about that. Well, you're here for a reason. Um, and for many folks, they start coming to a church, whether they're Christian or not, is because they are looking for some kind of change um, in their life. Something is amiss. Something isn't going right. Maybe you've tried a lot of different things, um, tried a lot of different churches, and you're looking for some place that can tell you how to change. Well, that desire for change is a human experience. You see it all across our culture. Um, it's continuing to grow with the propagation of the, the internet. We've never seen a preponderance explosion of things that fall under the genre of self-help so that so many people are engaging with even old philosophies. We're seeing the resurgence of Stoicism, um, of all things, um, Greek philosophy. A lot of people in, in technology and in industry um, are, are openly adopting Stoicism as, as a way to live, um, which is kind of crazy to me. But the way that people are looking at life is almost like baseball cards in truth of I'm going to look at this philosophy, I'm going to watch this person, I'm going to listen to this podcast, I'm going to listen to this radio program, I'm going to read this book, and I'm looking for tips and skills for my life to bring about change in these areas that continue to plague me and I, I'm not seeing any change in. Well, the Apostle Paul has been laboring in these previous verses to say, if you look at worldly wisdom for life, for forgiveness of sins, for correction of your problems, you will never find it. The only place where we find renovation and eternal life and help and hope is in the gospel of God found in the word of God all about the Christ, the Son of God. And so he's been going in that direction, and, and he's not offering Christianity as a bunch of tips and truths that you can adopt and put in your baseball card collection, which sometimes people will come to Christianity. They'll have a grid for how they want their life to function, and they're just looking for help in certain areas. And so people will come and say, well, my life's going great. I just have problems in my marriage. So would you tell me what the Bible teaches about marriage? So I can maybe adopt some of those truths and bring about change in my marriage. Can you tell me what the Bible teaches about parenting so that I can adopt some of those truths and put them into this motley collection of truths that I've had over my life? And the Apostle Paul says it, it, it doesn't work that way at all. That the word of God in whole 
is authoritative for the Christian in everything that it teaches because it is the very word of God and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christians don't come saying, I need a little bit of help. Where are the ways that biblical truth can round out what I've already developed? Christians come and, and they're, when they're saved, they adopt Jesus as their king. And God brings about a renovation that brings obedience to every area of their life. And that's what the Apostle Paul's arguing here this morning. And so he's talking to the Corinthian church. And where it goes is he's going to start addressing very specific problems. He's going to talk about how to deal with their finances. He's going to talk about how they deal with their conflict. He's already talked about division. He's going to talk about how they deal with their sexuality. All of these very specific problems and sins in them. But what he has to do first is he has to convince them that the word of God is the word of God because God has made it to be the word of God. And if you approach the word of God saying, I have sexual sin in my life and I'm looking for just some tips to overcome this sexual sin, you've already missed it. But if you come to the Lord God and you say, I am a servant of Jesus because I have confessed my sins and placed my faith alone in Christ, and I want to walk in the ways of Jesus, no matter what those ways look like, God, like a good physician, will give you a a checkup and tell you all the areas of your life that do need that renovation and bring change through the Holy Spirit. But it starts, it starts not saying, I have need, give me some good tips. It starts with saying, the word of God is authoritative in my life, no matter what it says, because Jesus is king is authoritative in my life. I'm not the judge of what works or what doesn't work, of what biblical obedience looks like. God is the judge. God is the king. And my life purpose is to live according to his ways. And in order to look at the Bible that way, We need God to do something in us, which is what God's talking about this morning in this passage through the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to look at the seven unique characteristics of the Bible, of the Word of God, this cross wisdom that Paul's talking about, um, and how that should encourage us to pursue the Lord in biblical obedience. And so I want to pray for us before we read. Father, thank you so much for your Word. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we read and understand and study this Word. We pray in Christ. Amen. So this is the word of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through um, 16. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
Now this morning we're going to go um, just down through verse 11 and um, pick up next week in the next passage as we go our way through. Again, we're looking at the seven unique aspects of the Word of God um, that the Apostle Paul believed and the reason that he was exhorting the Corinthians to believe so that their faith would be founded on the Word of God. Um, which is confirmed to us by the Spirit of God. And so the first thing we see may be confusing to you. It's in um, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, and it says that the, the first characteristic is that the wisdom of God that Paul's been talking about is a secret wisdom. Now, what I don't mean by secret wisdom, and what the Bible doesn't mean by secret wisdom, is that it's, there are parts of Christianity that we're not telling you yet. This isn't like other religions that fly under the banner of Christianity that hides wisdom until you've progressed to a certain level. So, for example, Christian science, which is neither, um, has different tiers of learning. And if you pay, you know, 200 bucks, you can do first tier and you take a test and it says, well, you've done great, uh, but there's still these other areas you need to grow in. And so you pay 400 bucks and you go in that area, they give you a test and say, well, you're doing great, but there are other areas you need to grow in. You can take third tier and you move your way up into more secret tiers that you can't access very first on. Mormonism is the same way. Mormonism has certain things that you can't learn until you've progressed to a certain level within Christianity, certain aspects that are hidden by the authorities until you get to a certain level. Christianity is not like that. Christianity proclaims the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation as it's centered in the person of Christ. Do you want to know what Christianity believes? Do you want to know what we found our lives on? We found our lives on the Bible that we try to put in as many hands as possible and declare to whoever will listen. Genesis to Revelation, that is what's there as it's pointed to Christ. Now, does that mean that you read through the first time and you understand everything as perfectly as you can? No, of course not. It'll be a lifelong study. But we're not hiding anything from you. It's not like, oh... Book of James, you don't get there. We're not going to talk about that book until you've been in Christianity for five to ten years. So what is Paul talking about in this secret wisdom? It's not in the declaration, because we declare the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation, to as many as you'll hear. Try and put the Bible into as many hands as possible. The reason there is world literacy and the concept of world literacy is because Christians have tried to put Bibles in as many hands as possible. If you look back through the Reformation and the people who were teaching English and even the earliest English textbooks in America, they are thoroughly biblical in the school system, not just because they were Christians, but because the reason that Christians wanted people to be literate is so that they could read the Bible. They didn't want the lack of literacy to be a hindrance from everyday people understanding the truth of God. And so what the Apostle Paul is talking about, the reason that it is secret is that unless God changes your heart, you will read the Bible and you will misunderstand it. Unless God changes your heart, you will read the Bible, you won't focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see it, as we've already talked about in the service, as in the service, as a list of rules that maybe you could accomplish in order to make yourself righteous before God. Without the Holy Spirit's transforming power in your heart, you will read the Bible and it will look like gibberish to you. And some of you, myself included, in our conversion 
a part of us coming to faith in Jesus was that it felt like the Bible we had always known just came alive to us. It was almost as if someone was telling us secrets about something that we had always known. And so it works in the world. I mean, we, we look at um, J.K. Rowling. Some of you may like the, the Harry Potter series. Um, the very first book, um, the, the Sorcerer's Stone, which in British was the Philosopher's Stone, was rejected 12 times by publishers. Imagine those publishers now and the, 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 the amazing amount of capitalism that's been generated through, through the Harry Potter series. And they're just, you know, we read the whole thing. We just thought that it wasn't worth publishing. So in the world, we can see people read through things that seem to be um, great things that other people would like and very significant works of art or other stuff, and we can't see it. But the way the Word of God goes is without the Holy Spirit changing you, you will read the Bible every time and reject it as a meaningless manuscript. Every time. And that's what makes it secret. In order to see the Bible centered on the Lord Jesus, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, which is why the Apostle Paul uses that word mature here in this passage. Do you see how he started in 1 Corinthians 2, 6? Yet among the mature, if I were to ask you for a definition of Christian maturity, how would you define a mature Christian? Someone who has an external morality, who does the right things in the right situations, Someone who has a certain level of biblical knowledge who can give you the, the outline of John and tell you the five souls of the Reformation. Those aren't bad things, and I, I hope we're a part of a growing Christian, that you are pursuing obedience to Jesus and moral behavior, and that you're also gaining a knowledge of the Bible. But the Apostle Paul doesn't say that that is what maturity is. Here in this passage, he's saying Christian maturity is the ability to read the Bible and say that the cross of Jesus is at the very center of it, and that that only make, not only makes sense to you, that you love and delight in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, that Christian maturity is a growing love for Jesus as he is preached from the whole counsel of God in the Bible. And so as we move into this year of training leaders and, and hopefully by the end of the year ordaining new elder and de elders and deacons, what we want to see in those men is certainly a knowledge of biblical doctrine and biblical theology, being able to rightly handle the word of God. But we most want to see in them is a Christian maturity that is marked by a growing love and delight for Jesus as he is preached and explained in every part of the Bible. Is that how you define your desire for growth and maturity? If you're praying for your own growth and grace, and you're asking the Lord God to grow you as a Christian, is it the very center of that prayer, Lord God, grow me in a love for Christ? Help me to love, Father, your Son, in some measure of the way that you love and delight in your Son. Because that, according to this, is what Christian maturity is. And it's what the secret is. And so that's the first thing that the Apostle Paul talks about and about the Word of God. The Word of God about the crucified Christ is secret, not in the proclamation, but in the reception. That without a changed heart, as we'll see later on, people will naturally and always reject the Word of God, and it will stay a secret to them. 
The second thing that he says is that it's a planned wisdom. And so he goes into 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Later on, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Decreed before the ages. As the story of redemption unfolded, and you get to Genesis 3, and sin enters the world, and death with sin, and through death and sin, all of humanity enters into the misery and depravity of sin that works its way out, described in scripture, even up to this day about the tragedy and the tra- tragedy and horror that sin wreaks in the world and in our own lives. And when you see it culminating on God's plan to send his own son, that Jesus Christ, perfect God and perfect man, would himself die a bloody, shaming dishonoring death for his people, that that was and always has been God's plan A for the redemption of the world. It wasn't that Genesis 3 happened, that Adam and Eve decided to reject God, believe the Satan's lie, believe Satan's lie that God was not true or loving, and they would just do it themselves, and God all of a sudden tossed up his hands and said, oh no, what are we going to do? Back to the drawing board. Come up with plan B. It wasn't that he had decided, well, we're going to work with Abraham. Well, we're going to work with Israel. Well, we're going to work with King David. We're going to work with the second Israel after the exile. And at each point, with the failure, failure of humanity to pursue a godly righteousness, that God all of a sudden was like, oh no, something else. Oh no, something else. But that God had always planned that the maximum display of his glory would be through the crucifixion and the resurrection of his own son, who was truly God and truly man. That at the very core of God's plan for redemption was also his own maximum suffering as the son of God experienced dishonor, shame, and the eternal weight of the eternal wrath, of the eternal judgment of the Lord God on our behalf. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying that the Bible that describes this crucified Christ, that that has always been from the very beginning plan A. If, if that's true, then as we look at life and we are prone to be discouraged by sin and a lack of the kind of change that you're looking to have, or even if we look as the Corinthians did and experience some, how could God's plan might honor be maximized at the cross? We can say this wasn't plan A or B or C or D or E or F, but this was God's plan all along for Jesus and for us. So as I say before, if you look at suffering in your own life and you wonder, I'm a Christian and I continue to suffer, what's the deal here? Can suffering in your life, very real suffering in our lives that has very real words attached to it, maybe tears from this past week, maybe suffering that we know almost for sure, unless God brings about an amazing miracle, suffering that will continue until the day that Jesus calls us home, can that suffering be a part 
of God's maximum glory and our greatest good. Can that be possible? Can that suffering in the Christian's life be plan A? And we see at the cross of Jesus and in the whole of the Bible, absolutely. That suffering cannot undo God's intention to maximize his glory and our good because at the cross of the Lord Jesus, the both maximally shameful event, the maximally suffering event, the maximally dishonoring event, the maximally God-glorifying event, the maximally honoring event, the maximally victorious event, the most amazing triumphant victory that's ever happened, happened in Jesus' bloody death. And so the plan of the Bible from front to back has always included the cross of Christ. And so we see our life and we see the Bible and we see our God through the lens of the cross. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, if you want to know how to judge worldly wisdom, and even as we looked at last week, a wisdom that parades is Christianity, the way to tell if it's truly Christian is to ask yourself the question, is the cross of Christ the very center of it? Not as plan B, C, D, E, or F, but as God's maximal plan for his own glory. That's what the Apostle Paul's arguing. Third, what he argues is that a Christian is glorified in this wisdom. You'll see at the end of verse 7 that he decreed before the ages for our glory. The, the beauty of the gospel of God is... A, not just that at the end of the day we are unworthy servants, which we are. I mean, God could just say, you're my servant, you're going to serve me, I'm God Almighty, you are my creation, that is your design. The amazing aspect of the gospel of God is that God has taken us and decided to glorify us along with his son. So they are part of the plan of the secret in the word of God is not just to glorify Jesus, but also to glorify us. And so the way that we talk about um, redemption and how redemption works out is there's justification, we're justified before God, and there's adoption, we're adopted and become his sons and daughters, and that there's sanctification, that God is making us more holy in life, and that there's perseverance, that, that for those whom God saves, he will see through to the end, because what God starts, he finishes, and in the end, we actually enter into glory, where we are made, as the Westminster Catechism says, perfect in the full enjoyment of God forever no longer encumbered by sin. That one day, you will be unable to sin and you will be able to enter into the perfect enjoyment of God. And that is our glory. And so, as God's talking about the counsel of God in the word of God, again, he's factoring into this the cross of Christ and that God's design to glory, glory provide glory for us isn't knocked off course by the suffering we'll experience. And so if we look at the three ways, we look at the cross of Jesus, and we ask God, well, how can the fact that I have sinned, am sinning, will continue to sin, factor into my glory? It seems like God 
If you wanted to glorify me and provide for my glory and enjoyment in you forever, you would remove sin. And what we see at the cross of Christ is that sin reminds us that we need God's grace. And so part of the reason that you are not made perfect now, you're not going to leave these doors, you know, walking two feet above and doing everything right, always having pure thoughts. One of the reasons there is still sin in your life is that you would continually cry out to God for help and for his grace and that your sin would encourage you to revel in the fact that God has loved you. The hope of the gospel is for the rest of your life, your sin would surprise you. Like if you stop being surprised by your sin, you are in a bad place. If all of a sudden you just like, well, I, it's still here. Or there's a new area of sin. But not just that sin would surprise you, that the grace of God would surprise you. So the Christian's life is you are constantly surprised at your capacity to sin and you're constantly surprised by God's love for you in the gospel to forgive your sins. This is the amazing forgiveness we've received. And so it's a part of our suffering as we suffer with the fact that we continue to sin, we continue to rejoice in the fact that God continues to be merciful and gracious to us. It's a part of our glory. We also live in a world where we suffer not because we sin, but just because we're in a broken world. This world is not our home. Sad things have happened this week, both personally and also globally in the news. Never before have we had such a broad publication of all of the nasty, horrible things that happen in the world. It's, it's weighty. And part of the reason the God has not brought all things to conclusion yet, part of the reason we suffer in a broken, fallen world, is so that we would say there is coming one day where we will know the glory of God and the happiness of the new heavens and the earth. And that's not now. That's one of the reasons we can dismiss things like the prosperity gospel. If anyone promises you heaven now, they are lying to you. If anyone deserved heaven in this earth, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, and he got killed. And so in the same way that Jesus suffers in this world, so we suffer in this world. In the same way that he passed through death and into glory, so do we do the same. And lastly, in this suffering aspect, there are times that we are persecuted for our faith. We should be persecuted for our faith. We don't like persecution. We don't look for persecution. But if we know we, we know we accurately describe the gospel of God and live that gospel obedience out in the world, people will hate us and persecute us. We know that as we receive suffering, that that too is a part of our glory. So that Paul says in Romans 8, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so the Bible also says, Christian, this path that you're on, this path that's described in the word of God, this path of obedience to Jesus, this is the path to glory. This is the path to your happiness. God is concerned with your happiness, your absolute perfect happiness, and it's in him. And the, what Apostle Paul is describing here is unless you can see the crucified Christ on that path, you won't choose it. That it will look like a windy path with overgrown branches with dark and mist and danger. And you'll look at other paths, paths that the world has to offer and you'll say, well, 
these other paths look so good. But you look on that path, the path that God's pointing you to, the path that looks dark, doesn't look like it's the path up, but the path down. And as you stare on that path, what you see is you see bloody footprints. And you understand as you see those bloody footprints only on that path that that's the path your Savior has trod in front of you. And if you follow those bloody footprints, footprints into darkness, into the midst, down, through trial, through challenge, at the end, there's glory. But you will not choose that path unless you can see the bloody footprints of your Savior leading in front of you. And so the Apostle Paul is arguing that this secret decreed plan for our glory is the way of the cross, the way of our crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus. It is the way that we walk on home to our own glory. The fourth thing that it says is that it's a secure wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. Now, rulers describe anyone who holds power of any kind. And the way you get power is through the exercise of power. And so anyone who rules may rule for different things. I mean, maybe you have a lot of money. Maybe you have famous parents and you're in a dynasty. Maybe you run a reality TV show. Maybe you were really good at whatever you did, whatever skill you did long enough that you got influence and power in that category. Well, the Apostle Paul is arguing here that rulers no matter how they gained the authority or power that they exercised, no matter what their skills or status, no matter what leg up, no matter what they accomplished, no matter the money, no matter the government, no matter what it was, whatever they utilized to gain the status of ruler cannot be utilized to access the cross wisdom of God. Everything in the world can be bought, except for the most important thing. Knowledge of the Lord God through his crucified son, the Lord Jesus, and the regeneration that comes from that. It can't be bought, it can't be wrestled. No one can storm the castle of God and steal it from his treasury. God has secured this wisdom, this cross wisdom, this salvation wisdom, so that any who possess it, possess it solely by the mercy and grace and gift of God. If you run across someone who understands the Bible through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you absolutely know one thing. They did not gain that wisdom from anything other than the free gift of God. So that for anyone in any culture at any time to profess that Jesus is Lord and see the Bible teaching from front to back that truth, they have already received the greatest gift they can receive from God and could not have secured it any other way. You can get as many letters after your name as you want. You can live on as many hilltops with as many gurus as you want. You can pursue power. You can have the wealth of the world. And none of those things will enable you to gain the most precious thing, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul is saying that here. None of the rulers were able to have it. None of them. It's, it's a secure wisdom. Fifth, it's a Christ-valuing wisdom. He says, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
the world and individual people without the saving grace of God cannot deal with Jesus with kid gloves. There are only two poles that people can be on when it comes to Jesus as they learn about him from the word of God. And it is either absolute delight and love or absolute hatred. The more someone learns about Jesus without their hearts being changed, the more that they will want to kill him or his followers. It always happens that way. Because at the very core, the book, the word of God that we all look at is a way to value Jesus. And if you don't have a heart changed by the gospel and you come to that Bible, the way that you will value Jesus, the value you'll place on him and his people is deserving of death and deserving of scorn and deserving of shame. But if you come to the word of God and God has changed your heart, then you look at Jesus as most valuable, most delightful, most glory, something to give up the treasure of great price, to sell the field, to sell all you have, to get the pearl. All of these things come from God changing your heart and looking at the Bible. And there's no in-between. There are only two options. You either hate him or you love him. You either crown him and exalt him, or you try to bury him. And it's how the world has always progressed. And so many people come into the church because they want to learn more about Christianity. And someone who accurately describes and teaches the word of God, if there's not heart change, that person will eventually leave, walk out the doors, hating and despising the Lord Jesus. And so it is for us in the world. Your ability to be approved of because you preach or share the gospel is directly related to the Holy Spirit. That should be an encouragement to you as you share your faith. If you share your faith actively, which I hope all of you do, share your faith actively with the people you love and with your coworkers, some of them have to hate you for it because God has not yet changed their heart. You can be as winsome as you want. You can be as kind as you want. You can be as reasoned as you want. And you shouldn't be a jerk about it. But as you share your faith and people learn about the true Christ, if God has not changed their hearts, then they'll hate you for it. Because they'll want to kill him, but he's already dead and raised again and can't die again, so they're just as likely to kill you and hate you. And Paul describes that here because this book is a Christ-valuing book. Sixthly, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, he says, But as it is written, quoting from Isaiah 64, 4, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, that the cross wisdom of God is biblical wisdom. If I can give people one advice for a growing Christian, is love the word of God. Study the word of God. Make the word of God precious to you. Because the word of God from front to back is about the crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus, and that is the way to come to know him. I hope you read good Christian literature, but I hope that the thing that outpaces all of your other reading of good Christian literature is your knowledge and study of the word of God and how you put it into practice in your lives. He's quoting from Isaiah 64, and he says that what's happening here is that the, the organ of receiving 
The bodily organ for receiving the word of God is not your eyes or your ears. Eyes not seen, ears not heard. That organ for receiving the word of God as the word of God and seeing Christ in it is our hearts. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So your ability to understand the word of God is based on a God-implanted love and not how many words your eyes can read in a minute or how many sermons that you can listen to. That the organ of receiving God is our heart and not our eyes or our ears. And that that heart is naturally stony until God replaces it with a heart of flesh. Seventh. Looks like I'll get through all seven. It is a spirit-given wisdom. And I'm going to be brief on this one because this is where we're going in the, in next week and as we work our way through the rest of this, um, this section. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Everything should be building, as you hear Paul saying this, to the point where you say, how then can I be saved? If it's a secret, if it's a plan, if I can't get at it without change, if I naturally hate Jesus rather than love him, well, how can I come to the place where I can understand, love, appreciate, walk in the cross wisdom of God as is taught from the whole Bible about Jesus. And Paul comes in and says, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to renovate all of you and to change the way that you look at this book. Um, One of the ways that Descartes has messed up our Western understanding and Western education system is um, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And um, maybe that was Aristotle. If it was Aristotle, then Descartes loved it um, and went with it. Descartes said, your ability to reason is the highest, most pure way to judge the world around you. That's your brain inside of you is the way by which you judge what is true and not true only thing that Descartes didn't see because he wasn't a Christian was that our brains are also affected by sin. So if the instrument isn't accurate and we place the instrument as the sole way to discern truth, then we're going to be unable to discern truth. When I was a chemistry student at UVA, we had long labs that we would have to do, and the first thing that we did in our labs was we always had to calibrate our scales. We had to go, and um, you'd have a, a standard weight, and you would put the standard weight, and then you'd set the calibration and make sure that the scale was reading according to the weight, and what you find is you know, humidity and pressure change and all these things. The scales could fluctuate drastically, and if you didn't calibrate the scale and start, all the rest of it would go wrong. So the way that the Bible describes humanity is that without the renovating, regenerating work of God causing us to be born again, when we are in and of ourselves without the kind of change the Bible describes as salvation, that all of our scales are off. 
haven't been calibrated or restored. And so both what we feel and what we do and our instincts and what we think are tainted by sin and we cannot get it right. And so in order for us to come to the word of God and say, yes, Jesus, I need that salvation. And I think that I'm a sinner and my only hope is in the mercy of God. And I want to live my life as becomes a Christian. In order for us to say those things, God has to do a work first by his Holy Spirit. That that is God's work first and foremost. And so you can't even say, well, I was a really thoughtful, rational person, and that's why I'm a Christian. The reason you're a Christian is that God arrested you, stopped you, tackled you, assaulted you in your unbelief, and caused you to be born again and be born into new, eternal, glorious life. And one of the first things that happens in that is that you look at the cross of Christ described in the word of God, and you say that is glorious and beautiful. And I want to live my life that way, not foolish and despicable. What kind of God is that? I'll take a bits and pieces that sound good, but not the whole thing. That is what God does when he saves someone, so that salvation is 100% the work of God, because we always get it wrong without God working in us. We'll hate him rather than love him. We'll confuse the book and try and use it to earn our own righteousness. We will do all of those things unless God changes us. And we'll look at that as we go um, forward in here and so in the coming weeks. So where that looks like for you is if you're not yet a Christian, pray that God would open your eyes to understand the Bible you may have known for your whole life, to see the crucified Christ in those scriptures, and to love the word of God as the very word of God that tells you that you cannot through your own works earn salvation and must trust in the Lord Jesus alone. If you're a Christian, and this morning you're a Christian and you're growing in that, you should rejoice. The reason you love the Word of God is not because you have set yourself to diligently study it, even though I hope you do. The reason that you understand the gospel and maybe could share it with someone else is not because you learned a handy-dandy outline. The reason that you love the Word of God is because God has worked a great work in you through the Holy Spirit. He has made his gospel, his Christ, his Word to be lovely to you, to be precious to you. If you like the Word of God, if you like the Bible and have founded your life on living by it, it's because God has already worked in you and it is a cause for you to be more convinced of your assurance of faith. One of the reasons you can be sure that you are a Christian is because you love the Word of God and you see in it the crucified, resurrected Christ on every page. Thirdly, that you would grow in maturity the same way as we saw in the beginning that if you're a christian you would define you would define christian maturity as a growing love for christ as you read him in his word and lastly that you would obey the word of god obedience sometimes is a is, is a nasty word to some churches and christians and it shouldn't be the apostle paul jesus all of them were after your obedience if you look at the beginning and end of the book of romans which is Paul's biggest testimony about God saving by grace. And if you, if you see what Paul's saying, the reason I preach the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. You hear Jesus all the way through saying, those who love me, obey me. Now, where that starts is when you come to the word of God and you say, that is the word of my king. And when I disagree with it, 
I'm the one that's wrong. You see, if you, like Descartes, are over the Word of God, and you decide what parts of it are right or wrong, when you disagree with the Word of God, you're going to say, it must be wrong. I'm not going to do that part. But in that, that moment, you're your own king. You're not following King Jesus. But if Jesus is your king, and you have the Holy Spirit to help you understand the Word of God, then you'll come across passages that talk about gender roles, and marriage, and divorce, and sexual immorality, and generosity, and suing each other, and divisions in the church, and you won't come to it saying, well, I'm going to choose the easy path. You won't come to it and say, I'm just going to collect a bunch of wisdom and figure out what might be right or what may be wrong. You're going to approach those issues, and you're going to say, Lord Jesus, King Almighty, I want to walk in your ways. What does your word say? Train me and mold me for biblical obedience. But biblical obedience starts with saying, the word of God is about the crucified Christ at every part. He is my king, and I want to walk in his ways. Would that be said of us? That we would love God's word, not like we're trading baseball cards, mining it for data and life skills, but it is the very words of our crucified Savior who we find to be most precious in all of life. We pray to that end now. Father, thank you for this, your word, which is true and right in every part, which is given to us for us to learn, to convict us, to lead us to repent us, to train us in righteousness, and most of all, help us to love your son, Jesus, more and more. Use your word in our lives to that end. We pray in the Holy Spirit that has given us that truth. Amen. When we stand and respond in song.